Welcome to Cretech Climate Cast, a podcast series devoted to educating, inspiring, and leading the built world to address the world's biggest crisis, climate change. I'm your host, Michael Beckerman, CEO of Cretech Climate, the leading voice for the real estate industry's commitment to climate tech. Join me each week for 20 minutes as we connect with the world's leading real estate and tech innovators from VCs, real estate companies, academic and nonprofit sectors. Thanks for tuning in and I hope you enjoy the show. Hey everybody, it's Michael Beckerman, CEO of Cretech and our newest initiative, Cretech Climate. Thank you for joining my new podcast, Cretech Climate Cast, where each week I'm talking to leaders that are focused on decarbonizing the real estate industry and creating healthier, safer places for people to work, to live, to shop, to travel, et cetera, et cetera. Today, I'm so thrilled to be joined by a great friend of mine. He is a speaker, thought leader, urbanist, journalist, academic, and there's probably 10 other things that he does that I'm not even aware of. He's somebody that I draw a great deal of knowledge, inspiration from my good friend, Greg Lindsay, who is the Director of Applied Research for the New Cities Foundation. Greg, good to see you, my friend. Good to see you as well, Michael. Thanks for having me on. So as I said, Greg, you know, you're my cities, you're my urban guru. You've spoken at all of our events, both the trailblazers and then on our, our stages for our large events. So just, you know, to start, I like to try and personalize this for our audience, for the few people that maybe not have heard of you. Where does this passion for cities and urban trends come from? That's a great question. You know, it's, uh, it's something that's fairly recent and a long time coming, I guess. I mean, what interests me about cities ultimately is like every problem the world is facing, it manifests in cities. Like literally it's where globalization is made flesh, like in the form of buildings and streets and all of these systems. And where, of course, the climate crisis will take place and where it might be prevented, you know, through uh, all these technologies and ways of living. So, yeah, it just comes back to that for me that, you know, you can basically tell any story, you can craft any problem through the lens of cities. And then, of course, the fact that, you know, most of humanity will live in one in urban areas by the end of the 21st century. So we're well on our way to being an urban planet. So, so it's, yeah, it's the front lines of everything, including, of course, climate and climate change. Yeah, that's wonderful. So let's start there. So I think a couple of the major themes that I just want to unpack with you, you know, the first one is just the state of cities in a very macro sense today, because, you know, the sense that I get and from what I read and follow and what you put out and your colleagues is that I can't remember a time perhaps in my long life that cities have been so challenged coming out of COVID, right? I mean, it seems that whether it's demographics, people moving out, whether it's social unrest, whether it's affordable housing, climate, et cetera. In your mind, in a very sort of macro sense, what is the state of cities today globally? I know it's an impossible question, but what's given you inspiration and pause today when you think about cities? Oh man. Well, globally speaking, I mean, you know, let's frame things appropriately. Globally speaking, like the action is elsewhere, right? Like sub-Saharan Africa is where humanity's urban future lies the remainder of the century. So it's a bit beyond the scope of our conversation today. But, you know, there's that. I I look at how, you know, East Asian cities handled the COVID crisis much better than their Western counterparts. I mean, there's been a lot of talk about how really cities should learn from each other. They really failed to do that this time around. Like New York should have been looking to Tokyo and Seoul, I think, for answers, and they didn't. 
Um, but, you know, and then here in the States, obviously, you know, or here in Canada, in the States, I'm coming to you from Montreal, um, you know, patterns are slightly different. O- obviously, in the United States, you know, people left cities and they didn't leave them in droves. We're seeing all the data is coming out now to show that there wasn't really a complete urban exodus, but maybe a, a speeded up timetable of all those millennial families who are eventually going to leave their smaller apartments and start families. And yeah, and they did so. They left for the Sun Belt as we expected them to because we never built affordable housing in New York and San Francisco and the other high cost metros. So they're going to places where they can find jobs and where they can find affordable housing. And in many of those places, and this comes back to our conversation, they went in the wrong direction from a climate perspective. They went to some of the most vulnerable areas in Florida, in Texas, and even those who stayed in California with wildfires and other areas. So, you know, the, the scale of the challenge ahead of us has gotten even bigger during COVID. People made the rational decision during a pandemic of where to move and, and have more personal space. But now we've got a couple grapple with the climate crisis on the other side. And, you know, we need a lot more tools at our disposal. Um, fortunately, it seems like the current Biden administration seems like they have a really ambitious agenda for giving us those tools. So when you think about, you know, you, you hear this conversation, this dialogue about, you know, San Francisco is, you know, doomed. New York is doomed specifically. And we're not talking about climate. We're just talking about, you know, sort of demographic societal changes. What do, what does the future to you look like for those mega cities? That's a great question of those. I mean, I still believe in agglomeration effects. I still believe that people want to be near other smart people and they want to have amenities around them. You know, for 50 years, Futurists like Alvin Toffler predicted that people would flee cities to what he called at the time electric cottages, right? And like, this is exactly what we hear today. And, you know, I I think obviously some of those are going to real, some people are going to realize that they can have that cake and eat it too, if that's the particular flavor of cake they like. But I do think post pandemic, people are going to, are going to, make choices that we're going to see different value propositions for cities. Like literally today, I just had a a chat with uh, the head of business development for Helsinki's uh, business uh, company, basically owned by the city. And they've got a whole program to attract remote workers who might've otherwise gone to Miami. And instead of offering them low taxes and warm weather, they're offering them winter, but also the best free public schools in the world and, you know, affordable housing and all these sorts of things. And they're finding takers who've never even been to Finland. That to me, I think is really interesting. It's like seeing cities play to their strengths and their advantages and not just sort of like basically chase after low tax states. Uh, so I think in the United States, we'll, we'll see the same. I think we'll see communities like Burlington, Vermont. Uh, and, you know, we're seeing Boise, Idaho. We're seeing, you know, this notion of like, can you have your urban urbanity and your amenities and your nature if you want to? And, you know, again, that's, that's not a new trend necessarily. Joel Garreau wrote Edge City back in the 90s. I remember. Yep. Yeah. I mean, he he looked 10 years ago, he thought Santa Fe, New Mexico was the future of cities in America. Uh, You know, cosmopolitan, urbane, but tiny, and you had nature close by. And and that could be the post-pandemic bet. We're seeing that big growth in Tahoe and these sort of other sort of quasi-urban communities there. So so I don't know, maybe maybe that's the future, at least for some of us. Right. But I don't think that I don't think that's to the, the detriment of San Francisco or New York. I mean, we know that New York has gained population during the pandemic. That data is coming out now. Younger people are moving there to replace the Hamptonites who are still right. camped out there. <laughs> so when you look at and you have such a global perspective, my friend, when you look at cities around the world, right? Because we've got a global audience at Cretech and Cretech Climate, what cities inspire you? Right? You've talked a lot about the 15-minute city. Where should our audience look? for inspiration to see cities that are on the leading edge of coming through COVID, which accelerated a lot of these trends, right? As a prototype, an example that they should try and emulate if they're going to get into the development of a particular city. Uh, where to start? I mean, you know, when you mentioned the 15-minute city, of course, that invokes Paris and Mayor Anne Hidalgo and like, you know, her efforts to remake 
the city for cycling and active transportation. I mean, I think, I think Paris is a very interesting post-COVID example, not just because of that, but uh, there's a project to remake the Champs-Élysées, you know, uh, which is a global tourist trap. And, you know, the, the initiative to remake that was not led by any like quality of life urbanist thing. It was literally sort of the BID of the Champs-Élysées, uh, realizing that Parisians hate that street, that it's a global tourist trap, and that they should redesign it for Parisians to increase the value of the real estate. And I love the fact that they made the case that way, that it was not just simply about, you know, seeing beautiful people on, on bicycles, but really the notion of increase the foot traffic and bring Parisians to this place that they hated. So, you know, COVID just became a way of accelerating that. So I think that's really interesting. Um, I think, you know, what Sweden's doing right now, you know, the, with their, you know, one minute city program, which is like thinking about how do you create new ways of remaking streetscapes and uh, there they're trying to do top-down government initiatives with bottom-up learning from people in the streets. I think that's really interesting. Um, I think America could learn a lot from Tokyo um, in the sense of, of, of housing. And we all, I'll go back to that. I mean, you know, Tokyo, Tokyo housing is some of the most expensive in the world, but they don't have a housing crisis in the sense that it went through the roof. Uh, it's fairly steady over time because the Japanese have almost no reverence for preservation by and large in that, and they allow you to tear down and rebuild, and you get this sort of dense urban fabric, a much higher density than we're used to. So I think there's a lot we can learn trying to figure out zoning, which we're seeing across the United States. During the pandemic, we saw, you know, Portland basically got rid of single family zoning. We saw Berkeley of all places do that. Um, so it'll be interesting to see if we can continue that, um, particularly as we spend more time in our homes and homes absorb more functions. We need a lot more types of housing, I think, rather than less. So I think of those in particular, um, I don't know, those come to mind. What are some of your favorites, Michael? Well, it's interesting because, you know, I am somebody that loves cities. I love New York. I love San Francisco. I'm also hopeful, though, that these changes and these dynamic forces that are hovering around the cities and have entered these cities will force them to get better and to change and to address some of these income inequality, the, the lack of affordable housing, the, the pedestrian-friendly nature of the city. So, you know, like I was in New York, you know, and I know this podcast is going to be broadcast later than when we're recording it, but I was in New York and the city recently was incredibly manageable for the first time in my long history of going into New York. It felt you could breathe. Right. It lacked the energy, but you know what? It, it was much more accessible. So I know they got to bring people back to work, but I'm, I'm hopeful that a lot of these cities, the big ones will use this opportunity to get better and address some of these social inequality issues. Now, pivoting to climate, which is, you know, the bulk of what you and I are focused on with Cree Tech Climate. So I get asked like, you know, and I'm on these panels as well. What is it going to take for the real estate industry to embrace climate change? Because you know, as an aggregate, it's 40% of all carbon emissions are coming from the built world. And what will it be? Will it be moral impetus? I hope so. Will it be financial? I'm pretty sure it's going to be financial. And it seems to me, my friend, that cities are on the leading edge of addressing climate change and sustainability. You know, you've talked to me so much about Orlando. You've talked to me, you know, we, we've talked about New York City, Local 97. You've talked to me about, you know, LA's Green New Deal and others. Is that your premise that cities will be the impetus and on the forefront of the world and the built world addressing climate change? Well, there's something at the forefront in terms of like where we need to lower emissions the most. I mean, I, you know, 
I, I obviously like, you know, people who live in cities have a, have a, have a less of a carbon footprint locally, but there's still all these huge systems out there. So I don't think that if just the cities reduce their emissions through local law 97, which is effectively a carbon tax on buildings, I don't think that solves everything because out there, in, you know, in the wilderness, you have data centers and, you know, uh, giant beef lots and all these other really carbon intensive systems to run our cities. Um, but yeah, I, I think, you know, I think what New York has done with that, I think is a model for the rest of the world. Like Tokyo had a carbon, you know, cap and trade before that, I think is really interesting. Uh, I think obviously, you know, decarbonizing our grids and what buildings can do there. Uh, I'm friends with Robin Beavers of Blueprint Power. Like she's got a whole system to allow buildings to trade power. So even if we, you know, we mount solar panels in every roof, now we can have other ways of sharing it across the grid. Those kinds of technologies are, are yeah, are utterly essential there. And, and, you know, and we've seen, you know, some big real estate companies are, are investing heavily in their clean tech portfolios and their climate tech. You know, uh, Linux, for example, you know, Lenar's built out a whole portfolio, which blueprints one of them, um, which they're then incorporating into their housing stock. So I think that's a critical piece. And then second, I think, you know, I mean, this ties back into the zoning and things, you know, it's important to relax zoning and to find other ways of building more densely in Los Angeles, for example, because if you don't, or you don't do that in the Bay Area, people then build housing out into the what they call the urban wilderness interface, which is where forest fires are happening. And, and you know, one of the things I think of the, during COVID were the stories of people who fled the Bay Area for Tahoe and other areas, and then had to flee back to the Bay Area during wildfire season last fall. And like, that's the frying pan and fire that we're caught between here. So, um, so yes, yeah, so we need to build more. We need to build with better technology. We need to basically make sure we have carbon taxes and other forms of regulation that don't have loopholes all around them. And then we need to basically build more densely in the places that are at less climate risk um, and, you know, not basically push people out into harm's way. So those are the three pieces as I, as I think of it for sure. Talk to me a little bit, because we spent some time talking about, you know, a particular city that I think always, you know, giving examples for the audience is, is really helpful. Is there a city that comes to mind where you say they really got ahead of climate and created a really thoughtful, progressive plan to take this on and create a better, you know, environment for the residents and, and the development community? Uh, you know, it's, you can't point to one city on the planet and say like, this is a true climate haven, although you see cities like proclaiming themselves that way sometimes. I mean, you know, Swiss Re just put out another index of like, uh, at the national level and like, you know, Finland was number one there. And like, I suppose I would point to Helsinki as, as a place, uh, that you might be safe or, you know, Switzerland was number two. I, you know, if you can get yourself to Zurich, I would highly advise it. <laughs> um, but you know, but even here, even here in Canada, in Montreal, which I, you know, partly immigrated to thinking about some of the long-term climate implications more and where we're having the warmest spring in recorded history here. Um, you know, even then we're not safe and there are heat waves that affect people. So I, I think there's some, I think there's some promising plans. I mean, plan NYC that was adopted during the Bloomberg administration, which gets, you know, updated. I think that's a good plan, but, but the problem with some of that is in post Sandy in the literature is that, uh, New York, in a way, just thinks about what's in New York's borders. Like, you know, there's a lack of systemic thinking at the city level, too, because they ultimately only have so much authority. So there's only so much they can do. You know, the city is the city. New Jersey and Long Island and Westchester are different things. So, yeah, I don't know. It's 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 hard to point to one. I mean, I'm also very interested, as you mentioned, Orlando, you know, in thinking about, you know, what's going to happen when people do start migrating. Because we are going to see, you know, financial incentives or disincentives to live in high-risk areas. We're seeing the insurers, for example, have tried two years in a row to basically just cut loose everybody living in the Central Valley of California because of the wildfire risks. The state had to step in and prevent them from doing that. And that, of course, builds up moral hazard over time. So, you know, what happens when, you know, Southern Florida becomes 
at least expensive or uninsurable, you know, and they start moving out of there, not to mention natural disasters. So that's why we have to think about it. And, and we are, I mean, I can't name names here, but I know there are <laughs> yes. very large smart companies that are thinking about what if people stop moving to the Sunbelt and start moving out of it because of those risks? Right. Um, and, you know, where, where will those locations be? I, I have a hard time people, imagining people moving back to Cleveland, maybe, or Buffalo, but it could happen. So. No offense to Cleveland. No offense to Cleveland. <laughs> well, so let's then, let's talk a little bit about the real estate industry. Like our car, our core constituency at Cretech and Climate is the real estate sector. What kind of advice would you want the real estate industry to hear from you or to get when thinking about climate and cities and urban and the future of those, all these forces converging on these urban sectors? What kind of advice do you give them? I don't know. Well, this is the sort of thing where like, you know, the, the, the money offers its own incentives and it's going to have to be, I think, you know, regulation that will ultimately drive behavior. Cause like, you know, I think of the things that were like, no one, no one is incentivized to think about or very rarely incentivized to think about 30 year hold times. This is why, for example, like when it comes to the climate risk and migration stuff, it comes down to homeowners because we're the ones holding 30 year mortgages. And so for us, it is a question of like, you know, do you want to put down that long? But obviously, you know, for CRE, that's very different. Um, I do think there's a lot to be done, a lot of advances to be done thinking about like, you know, more sustainable ways of, of, uh, I guess, constructing buildings or constructing the interiors and thinking through about how do you either increase the lifespan of those or how do we basically sort of, you know, more flexibly reuse space. Obviously, flex is going to be a huge trend on the other side of COVID. And so, you know, rather than continuing to build, how, what is, what is the state of the art in retrofitting and the intensification of space? You know, I, I spent a couple of years as an outsider looking into like the future of works or my other areas. And I was, blown away the first time I realized that like space utilization tops out at 40%. I mean, we should have been converting office towers to residential in Manhattan a long time before this. So thinking through what mixed use looks like and thinking through what that flexibility looks like and thinking through like, you know, what the, what the life cycle of those products will be, I think is a huge one. And, um, and rather than just sort of, you know, outfitting space and doing that. Um, so that, that's my sort of core advice. And that's where the finances need to catch up to it, right? Like in the sense of, you know, will, will the banks underwrite that? What are the models to catch up with that? And, you know, I think that's where you're seeing visionaries ahead of the, the mainstream. So, so I don't know. That, that would be my main advice there. It's the question of like not what to build. It's like, how do, how do you not build? How do you reuse, adapt, and reutilize? I think it's like the frontier of this. But, you know, again, I'm, I'm, I, that's where I want to speak to the experts and practitioners because I think we're all still learning there. Right. I think we all are. And I, I learned so much from you. When you think about the affordable housing issue, which is, which is really near and dear to so many of us, and I know it's important to you, how does sort of climate and post-pandemic trends give us you know, the opportunity and the hope that we can finally sort of address this affordability gap throughout the world in terms of housing? Well, I don't know. I mean, yeah, if you ask CBRE, that's like the $37 trillion question because, you know, one of their scenarios in the most recent report imagined a world where like institutional investors pour into, you know, into multifamily rentals, you know, which of course, you know, and, you know, rent, you know, single family rentals and others have been one of the biggest residential trends for the last 10 years now with big money behind it. So there's potential there. But yeah, I mean, I, again, I think it comes back to like, you know, there's a lot to be done in terms of construction innovation there. I mean, a lot of housing, of course, in coastal markets is outrageously expensive what it costs to build there. And, you know, the question there is like, can you streamline the permitting process? Can you productize the housing types? I know a bunch of prop tech startups that are trying to do this, um, you know, and thinking through like, uh, you know, how do you, how do you just sort of narrowly build within the envelopes uh, that are there? So you don't have all sorts of variations. Um, how can you basically use, you know, uh, whether it's, you know, cross laminated timber or other sort of 
you know, uh, uh, materials to basically bring down those costs. So all of that, and I think that's all essential, but it's still not enough. Um, I also think, you know, there's, there's innovations around, you know, accessory dwelling units. How do you basically build smaller homes in place? I think is important too. And then, yeah, there's all that sort of missing middle density stuff to build, you know, duplexes and triplexes. And, um, you know, and my friend Issy Roman, we know who was a chief economist at Zillow and now is his own shop. I mean, you know, he's done some back of the envelope numbers. I'm like, you know, if you just basically, you know, every 10 single family homes in Dallas and you, you know, were allowed to build a couple of homes on, on just a few of those lots, you would go a long way with housing affordability. So there's still a lot to be done there. And just like even slight relaxing the zoning envelope. So those would be the places I would start for sure. And then, and then, yeah, and then there's other tools on the table, like, you know, and I don't think, I don't think this is the Cretech audience's place, but like community land trusts and, and things like this, where like, you know, there needs to be some, you know, permanent affordability options, which will need, you know, philanthropic and state stuff as well. But I don't know. Yeah. There needs to be a lot more tools and, I, and, and you can build value on top of those things too. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. Um, a couple other questions for you, my friend. So one of the things that I am inspired by on this journey on the climate tech and decarbonizing the built world is the, the young people, the next generation that's coming up. And um, if somebody wants to get involved and they're, you know, they're either an undergrad or they're grad or they're just, you know, starting their career, where would you tell them to look to get educated? You know, is it New Cities Foundation? Are there a couple books that you could recommend? And how do we mobilize, inspire this next generation to really get involved in this mission? Because we need them. Wow, great question. I wish I was young again and like knew the Me answer. Too, I mean, <laughs> yeah, I mean, obviously, there's you know, there's the great university programs, Yale School of Forestry. I think like every, I think every leader in the sustainability movement seems to have come out of Yale's forestry program. Um, but yeah, I mean, I you know, of course, there's those, and then you know, in terms of books and resources. I mean, I think of like, you know, I think of the Rocky Mountain Institute for the world. I mean, some of the great think tanks that are out there. I think of like books like Project Drawdown, which, which you know, highlights all of the places in order where you can make the biggest contributions. Uh, surprisingly, number one is basically refrigerants. I mean, the, the gas is used for refrigerants. I know some really interesting prop tech startups like Tro and others that are basically trying to figure out how do we solve HVAC for a warming world that won't, that won't even, that won't increase its warming levels. So there's a lot of that there, but, um, but yeah, I mean, obviously I think things like, you know, Cretech Climate and I think other organizations out there that are, you know, trying to become these networks. I mean, you know, ICLEI, there's some, there's many great think tanks out there, but, um, but yeah, there's no one like umbrella organization to sort of bring it all together. And I, I think that's what we're all grasping for is trying to figure out like, how do you create that overarching community that can really yeah, those best practices, and it still isn't there yet. Maybe, maybe that will be you, Michael. Yeah, you, you know, it's it's. I think about it a lot, a lot. Like, how do we? Because I think one of the things that we're good at is, you know, the team, of course, is community building. So, how do we build this coalition, this community, right? And do it in a positive, constructive way, right? And it's and inspire the world to know that you know you're on the right side of history. We have to get this done. Science doesn't lie. The facts are there. We don't have much time. The clock is ticking. So anyway, I'm preaching to the choir. Tell me about some of the things at New Cities that you're particularly excited about that you all are working on with your colleagues. Our big initiative coming up is our sort of well-being award. So they were, they were basically, you know, encouraging cities around the world to basically uh, apply. And we're going to choose the finalists and winner of our well-being cities prize. Um, to sort of highlight, you know, all the sort of holistic approach to well-being in cities, which covers everything from, you know, from mobility to direct health and other stuff. Um, so that's, I think that's one area about thinking like more holistically about, you know, cities and not just, you know, economic growth and, you know, income and everything else. 
so there's that. Um, you know, of course, we had last fall, you're seeing the, the background behind me right now, if you're watching, um, uh, Higher Ground, which was our sort of first event looking at climate migration. And again, talking to Orlando because, you know, Orlando Mayor Buddy Dyer, his chief of sustainability, Chris Castro, you know, two of the more innovative people in thinking about this, you know, obviously in the middle of Florida there about, you know, uh, not just decarbonizing uh, the city's built environment, but also, again, preparing for sort of the social change and building housing for the people who will migrate there. So we're going to advance that program as well. And then, you know, um, the other thing, I'm, I'm launching a program focused on sort of remote workers and what cities can do to attract and cater to them in the sense of, you know, all these people making their choices on the other side of the pandemic. How can we see cities, uh, you know, encourage people to move there and, and think about, rethink what economic development means to not be just, you know, give out subsidies to build a warehouse, but to draw individual workers to attract families and settle there and put down roots. Um, I think, you know, I think we'll start to see if, Remote work stays, you know, uh, as part of a key ingredient of the future of white collar work. Um, then I think, you know, cities are going to realize that's where their economic development strategies lie. That's wonderful. So lastly, my friend, and I know you well, and you are an optimistic, sunny side individual. Are you hopeful given the enormity of this climate challenge? 2050 now feels like 2030 and that. The real estate industry, my industry, that's the one I've focused on, has such an opportunity to just be such a force of change in, you know, in addressing climate change. Are you hopeful, my friend? I mean, if you want me to be totally honest, I can't say I'm all that hopeful at this moment in time. I think you're right that the opportunity is still there. It's still barely there. We're clinging to this chance to reel it in. But, um, but yeah, we're not moving fast enough. And we're seeing, despite the dire warnings, it only get more dire. Um, I think, I think it's interesting to see that, you know, people are making rational decisions about where they might move and where they might live. That's what I did. But, uh, and we're seeing, you know, this youth movements that are pushing on this. And we're seeing, you know, uh, you know, President Biden has moved faster and farther than anyone ever imagined. So it's still there. But I still don't think, even though we're doing good things, we're not doing it enough. And so I guess I would say rather than talk about hope here, it's like talking to our audience to open up their eyes and to, move swiftly. Everyone is smart enough to know these challenges of this. We're all just basically hoping that someone else will make the sacrifice or has the answer to do it with, you know, when the truth is it's up to us. No one is coming to save us. It's up to us. And that goes for your portfolios. That goes for everything here. Like, you know, it's, and rather than think about, you know, where we can retreat to or rather where we can basically, you know, find new opportunities for profit, uh, we've got to protect what we have. And that comes down for everything from our portfolios to our families. And so, um, so yeah, I hope this can be a clarion call here that, you know, it's time for us to get serious in the decade or so that we have left now. Greg Lindsay for mayor, governor, president, prime minister. You got my vote, my friend. I mean, that is, that is a, a wonderful way to uh, conclude this conversation because you've given us, you know, the hope and the examples, which I really was important for our audience to hear. You've given us the challenges and what can happen if we don't the financial risks and what have you. And then you've told us that, you know, there can be great things that come as a result, right? The, c- the cities and the way we live and the way we work and where, and, and it's, a you know, like, a, as I say, it could be the birth of a, an extraordinary new age of real estate and the built world, but the clock's ticking and we don't have time. So Anyway, thank you so much for your time, my friend, and always inspiring and educating me. And uh, it's Greg Lindsay, Director of Applied Research at the Terrific New Cities Foundation. Stay well, stay safe, my friend. Thank you. If you want to hear more about top industry trends, please hit subscribe and join us on this journey to reimagine real estate. 
If you've enjoyed listening to this week's episode, please be sure to give us a five-star rating and share this podcast with your friends and colleagues. To stay up to date on leading climate tech trends and topics, join the Cretech Climate Community by clicking the link in our bio. Thanks for tuning in, and we look forward to having you join us next week.